I never met my mother's father, and that may be part of the appeal. He's a story, a rumor. He must have been very inventive, really. He must have been quite a survivor. They would already have known for seven years what was going on in Germany. Seeing that on a piece of paper, the fact that they've all got a number. It must have dawned on him that uh, at some point he needs to stand up and fight. How are you? Where are you? <laughs> and I went, I'm fine. I'm in Paris. <laughs> I don't think we can assume that somehow human nature has changed and the human being's capacity to do terrible things to each other has somehow disappeared. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. We I'd still like to know where Dad died. When we left my grandfather, Adolf Lempert, it was the early 1980s. He was working and living in Paris with his second wife, who, for now, I am still going to call Anna, not her real name. But what happened next, specifically when, where, or even if he died, remained a mystery. And we weren't really sure what to try next. Perhaps I ought to go to France and see if I can find um, out anything else. Yeah, that'll be the next chapter if yeah. we go there. Yeah, I I'd definitely be up for that. Two things you need to know. The first is, we did go to France, but not to Paris. The second thing is, why? Hello? Bonjour, Agathe. Oui? Uh, Pouvez-vous m'entendre bien? Oui, très bien. D'accord. Uh, Agathe Robin is a private detective based in Paris who was able to help me with something that, despite my best efforts, I had failed to discover. First of all, our investigation took us from Paris to the south of France. Oh, okay. Um, yes, your grandfather, so Adolf Lambert, mm -hmm. passed away on October 5th, 1992. October 5th, 1992, 79 years old. Not bad, Adolf. By then, he had moved from Paris to the Côte d'Azur, to Nice. He lived at the time in an apartment about five minutes away from the beach, I would say. <laughs> and he was still married to his wife. And the death certificate, I will Amazing. say, with the, with the report. His death certificate has a few anomalies. For one, it says he was born in Lemberth, L-E-M-B-U-R-T-H, which he wasn't. Nobody was. It's not a place. His father's name is correct, Zaya Oscar, but his mother's name is listed as Rosa. Rosa was in fact the name of his sister, who, along with his father, mother and brother, had died at Auschwitz, while he had made his escape to London via Lisbon. Presumably, these were Anna's best guesses, and point to a man who continued to speak very little about his past and the family he left behind. Thank you very much. Thanks to you. I mean, it was, a, it was a great opportunity for us to help you write that chapter of your grandfather's life. I googled the address of his apartment, and one of the first results was for holiday lets. That we could actually stay at the apartment block in which he'd lived out his final days, five minutes from the beach by a GATS estimate, 
seemed reason enough to plan a different trip. The idea was for my mother and me to go from the beginning to the end. First to Lemberg, now Lviv, where he was born, and then to Nice, where he died. My wife, in need of some rest before facing the home stretch of her doctorate in clinical psychology, would head straight to Nice. This is the story of the journey that trip took us on and the people I met along the way. Over 4,000 miles with twists, turns, tears, and more. My name is Andrew Evans, and this is Unboarded. In an effort to add more purpose to our journey, I set my mind to finding out where my grandfather was buried. I began by requesting information through the official channels, but I also contacted a funeral director based in Nice, several in fact. My reasoning was that they probably have some kind of direct line to whoever keeps records of these sorts of things. Soon enough, I found someone kind enough to assist, and I had my answer. Adolf Moritz Lempert was buried in Cimetière de Lesse, the East Cemetery. Just days before I left for Lviv, my wife and I attended a 5 times 15 event in Hackney, at which Professor Philippe Sands was speaking. You'll likely know him for his contribution to the Unboarded podcast by Andrew Evans, but it turns out he's also a renowned international lawyer and academic. And he is, of course, the author of East West Street, in which Lviv plays a central role. I'm feeling in the room that actually people... What people really want, perhaps, is a lecture on the backstop. <laughs> and the Attorney General's many advices. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk about my friend Ahmet Altan. Ahmet Altan is a Turkish journalist who, at 68 years old, is currently serving a life sentence. Ahmet's crime was that he spoke four words on a television program in the aftermath of the failed coup in 2016. Those words were interpreted by the Turkish president, Erdogan, and his government as being treasonous. Altan is one of tens of thousands arrested since 2016 for criticizing Erdogan and his government, actions that have done nothing to help Turkey's position in the World Press Freedom Index. Despite his incarceration, Altan has been able to produce the incredible prison memoir, I Will Never See the World Again, compiled from essays smuggled out of his cell. You should stop listening now and go and read it. Thank you. After the event, I was able to thank Philippe in person for his contribution to this podcast and pick up some last-minute tips for the trip to Lviv, crucially the best place to get good coffee. Lviv's city centre, all grand buildings, trams and cobbled streets, owes more to its days as part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire than of the Soviet Union. Lonely Planet describes it as the de facto capital of Ukraine's folksy West. 
Coincidentally, my mother and I stayed at the George, a hotel at which Philippe Sands is by now a familiar face. Since his first visit prompted the extraordinary adventure of East West Street, he has returned to Lviv every year. He told me to mention at the hotel that I knew him. I didn't quite have the chutzpah to drop a name quite so straightforwardly, but I did hold my copy of East West Street so prominently at check-in that the receptionist couldn't help but comment, allowing me to explain my tenuous connection. It was just catastrophic, I think, the announcement that she did yesterday. It was as though, you know, in the process of trying to win more people over, it seemed very much like she'd lost more people. To some extent, Brexit had been the catalyst for this entire story. And at the time I booked the trip, it was set to be my last as a European citizen. We were going to return the day before the UK left the EU. Of course, it wasn't our plans that fell through. This uh, deal in front of the in front of the Parliament again, and it's it's just with Theresa May. It seems like you know when you've got a charm offensive and you don't have uh, the charm, it just seems offensive. And as our TV relayed Theresa May's latest failure, my mother took the chance to familiarise herself with the hotel rules and regulations, as well as local excursions. Oh, do you want a photo session? I think a lot of them do think that they could have done extras. Leisure activities organization, tennis, horse riding, skating, paintball, billiards and bowling. Because I think to a certain extent, Lviv was always going to be more of a ceremonial visit than a research mission. Although its influence reached far beyond its blurred borders, my grandfather spent less than the first year of his life there. Still, I had made contact with the State Archive and was hopeful that we might find something. A record of birth, a marriage certificate for his parents, Saya and Frida, something. But the gaps in their archives correspond quite precisely with the dates we were interested in. Perhaps because of this less than successful day, that evening we opted to take up the hotel's offer of a walking tour of the city centre. Our guide was, I think it's reasonable to say, eccentric. Wild eyes staring up from beneath a black fedora and a cane that was clearly more for flair than stability. Stability is, in fact, not a word I'd apply in any sense to a man who, more than once, claimed to be a wizard. The tour proceeded as these things tend to, generally with an emphasis on the salacious and, frankly, violence against women. Heavily accented, it wasn't always easy for me to follow, but even I could tell that these were not all facts in the strictest sense. Another member of the group appeared to agree, raising his eyebrows quizzically on several occasions. And it was at breakfast in the hotel the next morning that this gentleman approached us. His name was Peter, and he was a historian from Poland. He asked us a little about our background, what brought us to Lviv, and then gave me a card for Marla Osborne from Rohatin Jewish Heritage. Marla, hello, how are you? Good, let me see if I can, um, for some reason I'm not showing that, oh, can you see me now? I think we might be audio only, but I'm only, oh, there you are. Lviv made, and continues to make, a big impact on me. And it was while talking to Marla via Skype a few weeks later, that I was able to begin to make some sense of it. She now lives in Lviv, but I caught her on a brief visit to her native California. 
Like our story, hers begins with a grandparent. Her grandmother was from Rohatin, part of the historical region of Galicia that includes Lviv. Of all the people in my family, she absolutely was my inspiration, and she was politically active her entire life. In the later years, was blacklisted in Hollywood, and then as she became an older woman, she even founded the Grey Panthers in Hollywood. Uh, for senior citizens' rights, and she testified before Congress. So that that side of the family was always interesting to me because they were very left, very socialist, very secular, and uh, politically very active. And she very much did what I ended up doing, which is uh, quitting working while she was in her 40s and liquidating her assets in California and taking off to bump around Europe for the next 20 years. passed away and my husband said you know what I think it's time for us to go to Rohatin and we were living in Paris at the time so we made our first trip to Poland uh, spent some time in Krakow and then took a train across the border to Rohatin and we got there and absolutely couldn't find anything I couldn't communicate with anybody in town I couldn't find where the cemeteries and mass graves actually I didn't even know about the mass graves at the time and I just felt like I couldn't wait to leave and get back to Paris. But Marla did return to Rohatin. And I realized my bad experience in 2008 on my first trip was because I was completely unprepared. And on that very next visit, I was approached by a local retired historian and teacher in town who had been dealing with Jewish descendants who had returned to Rohatin 10 years prior in 1998 and worked with the city to fence the Jewish cemeteries, both of them, and to put memorials up at the two mass graves. And his first question to me in Ukrainian was, now what do you want to do? And I had no idea what he was even talking about. What he was even talking about was his assumption that Marla had arrived to continue the work started by those descendants in 1998, who had since passed away. Perhaps the most extraordinary thing is that that is exactly what she has done, moving to Lviv and founding Rohatin Jewish Heritage. So I tell people I didn't go looking for the project, the heritage found me. Lviv struck me as a city ready to look forward, but without quite knowing how to look back. The Nazi atrocities, followed by a long Soviet silence, have left a profound sense of absence. Of course, if, having been to Lviv, you know practically every empty space in the historic town centre had a synagogue there. And not all of them are marked, but many of them are. It is far more common across Galicia to visit an empty space, uh, which was a Jewish cemetery, or where the synagogue stood. When my grandfather was born there in 1913, Jews would have made up around 30% of the population of Lviv. By 1950, it was down to just over 6%. In 2001, it was 0.3%. In 1940, Sprintz Lempert, Adolf's grandmother, was still in the Galician town of Skalit, where there were approximately 4,000 Jews, which swelled to over 8,000 as those from neighboring towns were brought there. 
Only 160 are said to have survived. The Jews of Galicia weren't taken to the gas chambers. They tended to be the victims of organized gangs with rifles. The Nazi philosophy in Galicia, which makes it quite different from other places, is it wasn't just about the destruction of the body. It was about the destruction and erasure of all memory of the culture that lived there. And like large parts of Galicia, Rohatin had a Jewish, a substantial Jewish presence for more than 350 years. And uh, one of the first things that happened, and in this way, Rohatin, I think, is very typical of uh, Eastern Galicia, was the destruction of the physical evidence of Jewish life that included the burning down of the synagogues and the um, the removal, the, the breaking and the removal of the Jewish headstones, which then were typically used, like they were in Rohatin, uh, to pave Nazi parking over at Gestapo headquarters or walkways in town. So Jewish headstones throughout Galicia were taken up and used to pave the streets. And I would challenge you to find more heavy-handed symbolism than that. But in Rohatin, Mala is recovering these headstones. Um, we've uncovered about 600 headstone fragments at this point that have been pulled from roads and private gardens and foundations of buildings in Rohatin over the last eight years and returned to the Jewish cemetery. And it's absolutely typical for Galicia. And, and this is what went on in Lviv last summer on Wulitsa Barvanuk, which is not far from our apartment. It had been known that the road had been paved with Jewish headstones during the war, but the road over time had been paved over several times. But all you had to do was talk to neighbors and residents and it was just known. And um, the city opened up the road to do some road work. Over five days, we excavated about 20% of the road and we pulled out more than 125 fully intact headstones, not, not fragments like I'm dealing with in Rohatin, but fully intact. And there's still 80% of the road left. Perhaps paradoxically, her work is not all that much to do with death. It's about life. For obvious reasons, Jews tend to focus these trips, these heritage trips on, on the Holocaust. Um, but I really feel it's far more interesting to be talking about the multicultural life of the cities before, the fact that there was a long, rich history of coexistence between Ukrainians and Jews, and, and in some towns, a, a larger Polish population as well. Uh, this is the interesting stuff to me. Not just interesting, but important. I thought back to something Philippe Sands had said when I first interviewed him. One of the powerful effects for me of spending time in a city like Lviv, which was in the 1920s and 30s, a thriving metropolis with lots of different communities, was it was unimaginable that their world would be utterly and totally destroyed. And yet it was. Unless you speak with older people who remember, that has been broken. The memory of that has been broken from the modern consciousness. The good news is the young people are wanting to explore the history of their town. So when I speak to them, they're asking the difficult questions and they want to know. They have taken it upon themselves to be the carrier of Jewish memory, even though they have no Jewish roots. But they're lovers of history and they're, they love their towns and cities and they want 
to be a source of information of what came before. And these are the people that are, the Jewish diaspora need to connect with when they go into town. It's not just about going one time to visit grandma's town and walk the streets. This is your heritage too, and there are people there who do care. This could all happen again. There's no backstop on progress. This story, which began in part as a fairly cynical attempt to hold on to my EU passport, has become something else for me, although an EU passport would still be very welcome. Obviously, it's a chance to try and be a good son to my mother, but it's also become my way of trying to make sense of what's been happening in the world over the last few years. The illusion of some kind of basic liberal consensus is apparently just that, and I know it may well be a reflection of privilege that allowed people like me to see it that way for so long. The comparisons of the current rise of the right, the rise of populism, to what happened in the 1930s are, I think, appropriate, and therefore deeply troubling. The world right now can seem terrifying, and it is. But that's not all that it is, and not all that it has to be. Like Harvey Milk said, you've got to give them hope. But right now, where do you even look for it? Marla finds a lot of hope in the young activists she sees in Lviv. And there is hope, I think, in young activism in general. Malala Yousafzai, Emma Gonzalez, Greta Thunberg. And back in that theatre in Hackney, it was hard for me to not find some kind of hope in the resilience of a Turkish journalist currently serving a life sentence. It really was something to spend a little time with a man who knows he is going to spend the rest of his life in prison on trumped-up charges and who was able to laugh about it. And it was something else to leave that prison cell with an unexpected, extraordinary feeling of elation, motivated by the sheer, towering greatness of Ahmet Altan and the human spirit. Thank you. How does a man continue to evade us even after his death? And why when that man is Adolf Lempert, did we expect it to be any other way? My name is Andrew Evans, and this is Unboarded. Although our visit to Lviv had led me to the incredible story of Rohatin Jewish heritage, we'd not been able to add much to the life of Adolf Lempert. But it was always our trip to Nice that was set to be the main event. I'd let myself believe that we might even find his second wife still living there. But a week before we left England, I received further correspondence from Agat Roban, the private detective who had obtained my grandfather's death certificate. 
Sadly, she had another death certificate for me. Heidi Marie, Heidi, I may as well refer to her by her real name now, had died in 2015, aged 74. 2015 was devastatingly recent. I had the sense that I should have, could have done better sooner, and that the story was over. Despite his tenacity, we were never under any illusions that my grandfather was still alive. But Heidi, some 28 years younger? That seemed possible. I wanted to meet her. That was my ending. That is what I had decided success looked like. Her death certificate showed that she had indeed stayed in Nice, had remarried, and that this new husband had survived her. Agat suggested this may be a fresh line of inquiry, but it seemed too far removed to be of much consequence. Heidi was the key to unlocking this final chapter of his life, a part that had remained a mystery to us. Adolf Lempert died on the 5th of October, 1992. But his daughter Linda, my mother, didn't know this until the 22nd of January, 2019, about 15 minutes after I'd heard it from Agat. I don't know if there'd been any attempt to let his daughters know at the time. His other daughter, Pauline, passed away without ever knowing. However, I recently discovered that there were people in London that had known all along. There's an incident described in Season 1, Episode 3, in which my grandfather, while dealing stamps in the mid-60s, ended up in a French prison due to his involvement in some kind of dodgy deal. Okay. Whether he knew about it being a dodgy deal or not, because he hadn't done anything like that before. Yeah. Uh, it was the Masonic people. He what, was, that got him out? Yeah. Or? So was he a um, Freemason? He was a Freemason. He was okay. a worshipful master. Was he? Earlier this year, I met with a gentleman who was emphatic that this incident did not happen that the Freemasons would not have helped in that kind of situation. I could understand him saying it shouldn't have happened, but to not even allow for the possibility of a rogue contingent seemed a stretch. I'm instinctively wary of a, a lack of doubt. Presumably, he felt this played to what he considered to be some of the damaging stereotypes about Freemasonry. But this was one of the few stories people had heard directly from my grandfather, even taking the story at face value, one needn't assume that anything particularly untoward had even happened. Being held in prison doesn't necessarily mean you've been convicted of anything yet. He may well have turned out to be an innocent party. And getting someone out of prison doesn't have to mean bribery or corruption. It could have been arranging legal representation. came away from that meeting, determined to take it further and find out more, one way or the other. Now, I'd love to get all Dan Brown and tell you that I infiltrated a lodge and learned their secret rituals. But actually, I contacted the Library and Museum of Freemasonry in London, who, for a small fee, free if you happen to know the lodge number, will, for genealogical purposes, provide you with the details on record for their members. And soon enough, I had these basic details for Adolf Lempert. He was a member of Nucleus Lodge. 
He was initiated in 1953, aged 40, living in London. But his membership ceased in 1968, intriguing, only for him to rejoin again in 1975, by which time he's living in Paris. He then remained a member until his death. And there it was, the exact date of his death, the 5th of October, 1992. The Freemasons had known before we did, long before we did. I wanted to find out how, and was eventually able to contact John, the present secretary for Nucleus Lodge. What I've got is um, a box of books, all right? And the box of books are um, 60, 70 years old. Generous with his time, John began to sift through these documents, looking for references to my grandfather. Or just to let you know, John sometimes pronounces Lempert as Lambert. But don't worry, we've definitely got the right man. 24th of April 1961, he's now, he's now a junior deacon. So he's rising through the ranks. So in 63, he would be a senior warden. And then in 64, he would be the master. Right, OK. Unversed in these ranks, I asked if this was as grand as it sounded. Is that a big deal? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The reason for his leaving the Freemasons in 1968 was a familiar one to John. Right. He was excluded. It says, The secretary reported that Brother A. Lambert and Brother had been excluded from the lodge under Rule 148, which, which means they hadn't paid their... Yeah, both being three years in arrears. So he was obviously going through a bit of a tough time then. Well, I mean, that would have been around the time he was divorcing his first wife and moving to Paris. So that would right. count for that. <laughs> but the fact that he was able to rejoin in 1975 meant he must have been able to settle those arrears, so return to some degree of prosperity. Then, slightly nervously, to be honest, given my previous Masonic encounter, in case you hadn't guessed, the man who took issue with the claim was himself a Freemason, I asked John about the French prison incident and whether the Freemasons would have helped. He responded with surprising candour. What sort of year was this? 60s, mid-60s. You see, now, what happened is, after the Second World War, um, Freemason, before the Second World War, I don't know if you're aware of this, but yeah. before the Second World War, uh, Masons used to walk up and down um, parading and all the rest of it, and they weren't a secret society. Hitler decided that the Freemasons were against his whatever it was, and he banned them. So for the rest of Europe and during the World War, uh, masonry went underground. It really was, it now really became a secret society. Um, then back in 1986, they said, look, we've got to go back to being, uh, you know, people know we're here. So we're not now a secret society. We are a society of secrets. So if it was before 1986, it's very likely that masonry would have helped him. The, the amount of things that were going on in Malaysia, I mean, you know, with policemen and judges and God knows what else and all the rest of it. So um, I would not be surprised if, they, if he got um, better treatment um, as a mason, um, as long as it was before 1986. So all of, all of the kind of maybe public misconceptions about Freemasons date from that? Yes, that era, or between 45 and um, 86, yes, there was, a, and so many people blamed them. And, and of course, a lot of it was wrong. Um, and, um, but, you know, being, being um, as a, a Freemason um, and having access to, you know, different people would have 
would have um, been quite good in those days because it was secret. But nowadays it's not. And as for how this secret society or society of secrets had known when he died, the likely answer is reassuringly prosaic. When it comes to paying his fees the following year, um, someone would have said, where, where are your fees? And then they would have done some digging, rang his home, sent a letter to him, and, or whatever his address was that he gave at that time. Um, and uh, he, he would have had to, we would have got a reply saying, look, you know, um, he's died. But back to our trip. Welcome aboard this uh, Asia Airbus 320 operating to Nice. We arrived in Nice late one evening, a taxi taking us to the apartment block in which Adolf and Heidi had lived. A short ride from the airport and a short walk to the beach. My wife had arrived a few days earlier and met us at the automated gate. C'est ma femme. Parfait. Merci beaucoup. The next morning, we planned to visit his final resting place, Cimetière de Lesse. Nice, by the way, is lovely. Old city glamour at a seaside pace. Our route to its cobbled shores was hampered only by the fact that the Chinese president was in town and part of the promenade had been cordoned off accordingly. The East Cemetery is on top of a hill to the north of the city. And at a rough guess, I would say that it's probably the tallest hill in the world. But with a kind of plodding tenacity, my mother and I walked to the top and eventually found a friendly attendant. After some very clumsy French on my part, he took my grandfather's details and brushed about a half inch of dust from a keyboard in the corner of the office. But the computer produced no results, and he went to a wall of leather-bound books instead. And there we found his name, a handwritten entry. Adolf Moritz Lempert, died 5th of October, 1992. Buried in the East Cemetery on the 8th of October, 1992. And then, on the 5th of October 2000, he was exhumed and moved to Marseille. And from a story point of view, the moment we scaled that hill to find his final, I'm doing air quotes here, resting place, is clearly the perfect time to discover he has moved. But the truth is, before we reached the top of that hill, before we arrived in Nice, in fact, I knew that he had been exhumed. I even knew he'd been moved to Marseille, which is how I was able to update my mother back at the George Hotel in Lviv. He was buried in the East Cemetery in Nice. Right. But in the year 2000, he was exhumed and they moved him to Marseille. Okay. The day before we left England, I'd received this information from Nice Town Hall, prompting some frantic requests to their counterparts in Marseille. But as we boarded the plane, I had yet to receive a reply. We do know where he died, yeah. and we do know where he's buried, but he's just not there anymore. He's not there. <laughs> <laughs> he always was a mystery, man of mystery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, does, he did like travelling, so he's still going to do it. Yep. In his afterlife. In his afterlife. We'll probably find Apparently. by the time you get to Marseille, he'll have gone somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. He's in Rio. <laughs> so why, you might reasonably be wondering, did we still walk 
all the way to the top of the hill. We went because I thought, wrongly as it turned out, that the cemetery must have more precise details of this relocation. They didn't. Marseille. Nothing else. I also thought they may be able to tell me why. They couldn't. They did give me some numbers to try in Marseille, and even tried calling one of them themselves while I was there. But, if I understood correctly, this office was enjoying a long lunch at the time. What this visit did give us was the precise date of his exhumation. Back in Lviv, I'd only known it was the year 2000, but now we knew it was the 5th of October 2000. Exactly eight years after his death, surely not a coincidence. So why had my grandfather quite literally lost the plot? I, the thing is, we don't, maybe lots of people were exhumed. Maybe this happens all the time. Well, yes. I don't know, that's yeah. the trouble. I don't know if it was hymns, <laughs> unique to him. I think it's quite surprising because I think some people, I would imagine, tend to think much of their age. You know, you're in there, you're in the ground and you have a space that is, that is yours, as it were, your family. And that remains when, of course, it doesn't. I found the likely answer quite neatly surmised in a recent article by Kim Wilshire, an award-winning journalist and foreign correspondent working in France for The Guardian and The Observer. Apparently, a grave in France is not necessarily a long-term deal. Each French commune is obligated to provide a grave for five years. When that runs out, they try to contact the family. And they contact the family. They make quite strenuous efforts to contact the family. And they say, look, what do you want to do, basically? <laughs> yeah. If you're in a city and you want to keep your prime location, you're going to need some money. In Paris, the cost of an imperpetuity grave can be over 15,000 euros. So, in a mirror of the property market, most Parisians are being pushed out to the suburbs. Yay, capitalism. There are very, very few green spaces in Paris itself. There's not that many cemeteries either. They did tell me, I think there's something like six major cemeteries in Paris. Yeah. And I would imagine it's the same with me, so probably Marseille as well. Yeah. Um, of course, if a family has a family vault, the situation is entirely different. Most of these vaults have been uh, taken uh, historically in perpetuity. And mm. so, uh, you know, you can carry on putting people in them from forever kind of thing. They won't be removed. But even on a short lease, it would be wrong to suggest they send in some kind of graveyard bailiffs. You know, it's not five years of art. It still takes time to organise the whole exhumation and so it's usually two or three years their remains are removed. They go into a general ossuary. An ossuary is a kind of communal resting place, but typically you're taken to a nearby ossuary. That's why I was surprised that your grandfather's remains have been removed to Marseille because Nice indeed has a large ossuary. So why would they have moved him to Marseille, some 200 kilometres along the coast, especially when Heidi stayed in Nice. But we wouldn't, it's too far for us to go from Nice to it. It wouldn't be too far if we knew what we were doing, like where we were going. Yeah. Back in Lviv, my mother and I discussed the possibility of a trip from Nice to Marseille. It would be worth a trip. I'm sure there's a train between Nice and Marseille, but that's if we know where we're going. It might be a big place. <laughs> it is a big place, yeah, and it's probably got more cemeteries yeah. than Nice. It seems weird saying that that would be nice um, if we could actually find a burial place. Yes. 
And so, sat on a bed in a hotel in the city in which my grandfather was born, I tried to get in touch with the city in which he was eventually laid to rest. And if they can get back to us before Thursday, then we've still, well, Wednesday, yeah. then we've still got a chance. But days later, as we walked back down that hill, we were still no closer. Our host in Nice offered his assistance, suggesting that the most likely location would be Cimetière Saint-Pierre. It's the biggest cemetery in Marseille and has a large ossuary. But time was running out. It was the evening before our last full day in France. As the sun set, I called the cemetery and gave my grandfather's details. The comedian Mitch Hedberg had this line, I think Bigfoot is blurry. It's not the photographer's fault. Well, Adolf Lempert is blurry. This story is blurry. It's not my fault. My name is Andrew Evans, and this is Unboarded. My mother and I were on a train bound for Marseille, and I had a chance to reflect on the information I'd just received. We knew my grandfather, Adolf Lempert, had been buried in 1992, had been exhumed in the year 2000, and that his remains had been taken to Marseille. Based on not much more than the law of averages, I'd made a call to Cemetière Saint-Pierre, the largest cemetery in France's second largest city. I gave them the information I'd obtained from his death certificate and from Cemetière de Les in Nice, his original final resting place. They'd told me to call back the next morning, the morning of our last day in France. Mon grand-père? Oui, oui, oui. Square 31, third row, okay. He was indeed buried there now. Train tickets were hastily purchased. Grave should already have been my first clue that things were going to be characteristically convoluted. When your remains are exhumed, it's usually so they can be taken to an ossuary, a communal resting place, not a new grave. But back when I'd spoken to the Guardian's Kim Wilshire about this, she'd mentioned something. Of course, if a family has a family vault, the situation is entirely different. And that was apparently what we were dealing with, a family tomb. But the family name was not Lempert, not even Zuckercandle. It was... Morel. Morel. Merci As soon as we arrived in Cimetière Saint-Pierre, I realized that I had perhaps underestimated its enormity. I assumed that they would produce a map, mark a spot, and send us off in the right direction. But we were led to a people carrier. And though, to my mind, the details I'd been given were quite specific, our driver warned us that this was... Much difficult. Très compliqué. Très compliqué, oui. And it was très compliqué. 
he drove us to the approximate site where we continued on foot. Several times he would check the row number, count the number of headstones in, only to realize he'd started from the wrong point. We genuinely began to worry that he was going to have to abandon the search. But finally, we reached the grave. And when I say the grave, I mean the Morel family grave. Its only named occupants were Maurice Morel and Rose Morel. If Agathe Raban from RCI Detectives hadn't gone the extra mile and found my grandfather's second wife Heidi's death certificate, this name would have been meaningless to me. I would likely have assumed there'd been some kind of mistake. But thanks to her, I knew Morel to be the surname of Heidi's new husband, René. And from the dates on the grave, Maurice and Rose must have been René's parents. My best guess is that when my grandfather's time was up in his original grave, see previous episode for how that's a thing, the authorities contacted Heidi as his next of kin, and rather than let his remains be moved to an ossuary in Nice, she convinced her new husband, René, to let her first husband into the family tomb. Well, I'm kicking myself now. Of course he's in somebody else's mum and dad's grave. Why wasn't that the first place we looked? Seriously, though, this is not standard graveyard practice. And presumably what doesn't normally happen is that you're moved to the family tomb of your second wife's second husband. No, I wouldn't have thought so. I, mean, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought that being moved to a family tomb anyway was very, very unlikely because okay. one would think that if you had a family tomb, you'd be buried in the family tomb to start with. As we stood by the grave, my mother shed a few tears. Not for his passing so much as the time they could have spent together, if only she'd kept in touch. But my nan had been so devastated by the affair, by his leaving her for another woman, that my mother's choice, her or him, at that time was really no choice at all. Her one impromptu visit to him in Paris had to be kept secret while my nan was still alive. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm fine. It's just Good. emotional. Yeah, of course. It's been a long journey. Yeah. Two years trying to find him. I'd love to tell you what I was feeling at that time, but the truth is, I wasn't feeling much of anything. Maybe it was because there wasn't the finality of a name chiselled in stone, but what I'd imagined would be a conclusion seemed like anything but. I was already thinking about the next steps. When I first received Heidi's death certificate, Agat had suggested trying to contact her widower, René, but truthfully, I'd not given him much thought. Now, though, knowing that he'd allowed my grandfather to share a grave with his mother and father, this was a man I wanted to meet, if only to say thank you. An ossuary can be an unsatisfactory place to visit. People do complain because you can't actually access them. You don't have a place that you can go and pay your respects. Okay, so we're quite fortunate in that respect. You are, yes. When I told Kim about René, she had some advice. If you think this person might still be alive, that's possibly why you need to move quite quickly. She even offered to look herself. If you send me some details, I can 
what we can find out from uh, down in Nice. I'll have a look. I am used to sort of digging around and looking at, okay. uh, at things a bit obliquely. And for a time, it really did seem as though René was still alive. I drew up a list of retirement homes in and around Nice and began calling to see if he was a resident there. But we eventually did discover that he had passed away on the 31st of October 2016, the year after Heidi. This seemed like the end of the road, and back in London, I started to piece together the information I had. Meanwhile, the story and podcast had featured in a couple of local papers and in the Jewish Chronicle. The print headline, Grandad, He Lied His Way Out of Hell, being replaced by the slightly more sedate, Brexit led me to discover the story of my granddad's shower escape for the online version. A week or so after the article's publication, Rosa Doherty, who had written the article, forwarded an email to me. Hi Rosa, my mum read your article last week about Andrew Evans looking for his grandfather, Adolf Lempert. My parents were very friendly with Addy, who used to visit our home, and my parents visited him and his then-wife Heidi in Paris. My mum would be very happy to talk to him if he would like to. Please don't hesitate to ask him to contact me. Regards, Karen Jacobs. It wasn't mentioned in the article, but Addy was the name by which all close friends and family knew my grandfather. There was a strange reluctance to use Adolf. The following email was where I really had to catch my breath. Hi again. Here is a photo of Addy from our wedding in 1982. He is centre of the table. His wife is sitting to the left. Regards, Karen. Dead centre of the frame, staring out at me. Addy. Adolf Moritz Lempert looking much as he had done in the picture my mother had from her clandestine visit in Paris a couple of years prior. Of course, we arranged to meet Karen and her mother, Geraldine, who not only invited us into her home, but allowed me to record some of her memories of Addie, of my grandfather. Remind of her story of saying that your grandma was a very keen Freemason. A very keen Freemason. As I'd discovered, in 1968, my grandfather had been excluded from his lodge, Nucleus Lodge, for being three years behind in paying his fees. The present secretary had found the minutes from 1975 when he was readmitted. And welcome back into the lodge. He reaffirmed his intention of making every effort to attend meetings of the Lodge and thank the members present for his welcome back. And it must have been just before this that Geraldine and her husband Clive came in. I met Addy when he wanted to rejoin the Lodge, which he'd left when he left England. And my husband and I met him, him and his wife Heidi. Uh, my husband was treasurer of the Lodge. This was supposed to be a 30-minute meeting, but... Turned out to be about three hours. You know, we were talking, and I think we... I think in the end we had a meal, and, <laughs> and we became friends. From then on, we saw quite a lot of them, both in Paris and in London, also in Nice. We had some wonderful times together, he was a real charmer. <laughs> There's, no question. There's no question about that. 
When I started this process, I think I saw my grandfather's famed charm as surface, maybe. Something he wielded to talk his way into or out of anything as he saw fit. But in Geraldine's recollections, there is warmth and sincerity. He very much liked people. Mm. He, wa he was definitely a people's person. And when she spoke about the love he shared with Heidi, it's clear that although he'd behaved so badly, so deceitfully, see season one, episode three for details, it wasn't all for a fling. And if this was a midlife crisis, he A, left it a bit late, and B, really ran with it. They actually adored each other. He used to call her Shoe. His Shoe. His Shoe. Shoe. C-H-O-U. Shoe means cabbage in French, by the way, but apparently it is a term of endearment. He never seemed to speak to anyone about the Holocaust and the family he'd lost, and Geraldine and Clive were no exception. He didn't talk about what had happened during the war, not at all. Never discussed it. We only knew that he had escaped and that he joined the Air Force and that he, he had a good record in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing I knew. Geraldine seemed concerned that we would be underwhelmed by what she had to say, but I was grateful for every word of her razor-sharp recall, pulling the blurry myth into focus. She knew how he'd met Heidi. Yes, it... He met her at um, a trade fair of some sort. I don't, definitely, it was some sort of a trade fair that he met her. Incidentally, on the marriage certificate, Heidi is listed as a children's nurse, so quite how she came to be at a stamp fair is still a mystery. Clive had actually known Addie before he left for Paris. He would have known my nan, Olive, and may even have met my mother and her sister. But by the time Geraldine met him, he had been remarried for about four years. He, he lived very well in Paris and in Nice. But at some point, and Geraldine is not clear on the details, the money seemed to run out, and he was quite ill towards the end of his life. I wondered about those last days, if he thought about the family he'd left behind, if he considered reaching out. We tentatively asked if he ever mentioned having daughters. Well, I, I knew from my husband that he had had two daughters. So and he did and he did mention he did mention, you know, that he had daughters. He, he wasn't hiding that mm -hmm. he had yeah. had daughters. Mm -hmm. There were also some fascinating insights. One time when Addie and Geraldine were out together and came across some Hebrew writing, while Geraldine could make out the basics, Addie could read it start to finish. While this obviously suggests someone who'd had Jewish schooling, which we could have guessed, and a gift for languages, which we knew, it also speaks to someone who, whatever he'd had to do to survive, never lost a sense of his Jewishness. And having survived, I'm sure joining the Freemasons, for example, was in a way part of an ongoing quest to belong. And there were even some straight-up revelations. When she mentioned Heidi's second husband, I smugly said, René Morel showing how thorough my research had been. But this was not her second husband. She had at least one more husband before René. 
I asked if Geraldine could remember the last time she saw my grandfather. Nothing sprang to mind, but one of the last times, she thought, would have been Addie's Ladies' Night. I remember going to his Ladies' Night. That was in Paris. Hmm. <laughs> that was an interesting thing, but that wouldn't, wouldn't... Wouldn't be suitable for the podcast. And maybe she was right. My grandfather doesn't really have a leading role in this story, but I'm including it for the sheer joy you'll hear in its telling. Plus, in a podcast where I've obsessed over using one man's life to see a bigger picture, it's pleasing, as it draws to a close, to just focus on one fun night spent with friends. Some very quick background. As traditional Masonic lodges were, and remain, men only, they host regular ladies' nights for members to honour and celebrate the women in their lives. By all accounts, these are glitzy affairs. An interesting side note, the one exception to this men-only rule is trans women, providing they joined at a time when they still identified or presented as male. So far as I know, it has remained a hypothetical ruling since its introduction in 2018. They would still have to be referred to as brother, but can wear traditional female clothing. The guidelines helpfully suggesting a smart dark skirt and top. Anyway, Addie's Ladies' Night. It was at the Intercontinental in Paris, a grand hotel with several ballrooms. And uh, he told us where it was, but he didn't say which ballroom it was in. <laughs> so, dressed in their finest, Geraldine and Clive approached the entrance to one ballroom, but quickly realised... This is not a Masonic do. <laughs> this is a B'mitzvah. <laughs> but... As they were staring through the glass doors, the caterer came out. So he said, oh, have you come for this? And it's just, so we said, no, we've come for a ladies' night. Regardless, the caterer offered to show them around, and before they knew it, they were introduced to the host and hostess. So they, you know, we started talking to them. So they said, oh, would you like to come to the puppets? <laughs> they politely declined, but the invitation was left open. If, if you're not enjoying yourself or anything, you can always come in. You know, we can always make from at the table. Eventually, they did make it to my grandfather's ladies' night and took their seats. But the food being served was not kosher, and Geraldine spoke to a caterer, concerned there would be nothing she could eat. He said, don't worry, my friend's catering next door. What would you like? <laughs> As the tables were being cleared for dancing, my grandfather and Clive decided that they should check in with the Bermitzvah next door. And at this very orthodox affair, with guests ranging from small children to elderly relatives, they were pleasantly surprised with the entertainment. This is a singer, and she's got a see-through blouse, blouse on. <laughs> this is a, well, I think we, we had to, to drag both of them back. <laughs> Eventually, they were able to drag Clive and Addie back to the ladies' night. But when that function finished, around midnight... The boys said, shall we pop, pop in there? <laughs> so we, we went back in there. <laughs> Do you know what? They put us at a table. <laughs> we stayed there for about an hour. <laughs> and it was still going strong. Oh, that was Addie's ladies' night. Okay. <laughs> That was one of the last. <laughs> oh. That was a lovely memory. <laughs> it was, it was. <laughs> I can't believe you thought we wouldn't want to hear that story. I 
like I did have my ending. They had known him, more or less, to the end. Of course, I had my mother's recollections of her father, but I thought this was as close as I was ever going to get now to knowing the man. I would love to have met my grandfather, but really, I would have liked the me I am now to have met the him he was then. What the eight-year-old me, pale, slight, and painfully shy, would have made of the 77-year-old Adolf Lempert is far from clear. And as I said right at the beginning of this whole thing, a little distance can be very useful when telling this story. And if I'd known the man, maybe the myth wouldn't have called out to me so incessantly, and this adventure would never have happened. I've spoken to journalists, activists, lawyers, Freemasons, private detectives, and historians. I've spoken some truly terrible French. And at almost every step, I've been met with kindness, or at a bare minimum, patience. They often say if you're not angry, then you're not paying attention. And with things being the way they are at the moment, it can be very tempting to take the not paying attention option. Researching for this podcast, telling these stories, and the people I have spoken to, helped fend off complacency. While it's been an endeavour that's often bordered on obsession, on balance, I think the focus and drive it's inspired in me has been a ballast to my mental health. And for all that, I can be thankful to my Holocaust-surviving, Nazi-fighting, stamp-dealing, grave-hopping grandfather. What a life, Adolf Moritz Lempert. What a life. That's as far as I can take this story. This is where I have to let it go. Unless... Well, there was that sibling back in Season 1, Episode 1. Morridge, Morier... We never were quite sure how to say it. He or she disappears from the record sometime in the 1930s. And my mother does have this vague memory of her father mentioning an uncle in America, an uncle with the name Zucker Candle. Now, they couldn't have been any older than 10, so they wouldn't have been traveling unaccompanied and may well have been given a different name. But if I can search American immigration documents from 1930 onwards and cross-reference them with the information I have from the Belgian immigration documents, date of birth, place of birth, etc. The Unboarded Podcast was written and produced by me, Andrew Evans, with contributions from my mother, Lynn Evans, from Agat Raban of RCI Detectives, Guardian Foreign Correspondent Kim Wilshire, John from Nucleus Lodge, Marla Osborne from Rohatine Jewish Heritage, and Geraldine Hartstone. Special thanks to her daughter, Karen Jacobs, and to Rosa Doherty of the Jewish Chronicle, and to 5x15 for allowing me to use excerpts from Philippe Sands' speech. Special thanks also go to my sister Lucy and to my friend Nick for getting the story out there. This podcast is dedicated to my wife, Dr. Julie Evans. You can get in touch on Twitter at UnboarderedPod or via our Facebook page. Just search Unboarded Podcast. If you've enjoyed the series and want to express that financially, visit paypal.me slash unboarded. My name is Andrew Evans. Thank you for listening. 
take it easy. Uh, no, we didn't. No.